Right. Yeah, it's even the masks don't make it easy, do they? All right. Well, I do want to uh, just thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. It's great to see you here and also online. Um, we are continuing our Solid Foundation series where we're looking through scriptures that really help us that as we apply them can provide a foundation for our relationship with God. We want to be a church that doesn't just talk about following the Bible. Amen. We want to be a church that actually lives it out. Can I get an amen to that? We want to live it out in our lives. And so this is what we're talking about. Scriptures that can help us to have a foundation for a walk with God. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 in a second. But uh, before we get there, I do want to make a quick announcement and kind of note to parents of young children in our fellowship. Parents here as well as parents on Zoom. We believe as a church that one of the most important jobs we have as parents is to help our children build a relationship with God while they are under our care in our families. Part of that we know is helping them to appreciate joining together with the body of Christ to worship, to connect with God and to each other. Before the pandemic, we structured our services so that children would stay with their families for the majority of service. This was, you know, we, we kept them here all the way until the sermon started in order to help them to be as connected as possible to the worship and the community of the church. Now, only did this during the sermon that was often 35 or 40 minutes, did we send them off to classes to have kind of age appropriate uh, teaching and some connection time with their peers. Now, because of, well, during the pandemic, while we were doing Zoom services, often, you know, we were obviously at home. And then now that we've been getting back together, we've had service here in the auditorium, but because of concerns about spreading the, the coronavirus, we have not resumed our kids' classes yet, okay? However, we know, okay, we know that many families have struggled to get their kids interested in the Zoom service. We get it. So while we wait for the kids' classes to resume, I would just tell you that if you are having trouble getting your kids to connect with service over Zoom, we would invite you to bring your kids to service here. You're welcome to bring them here. We will incorporate songs that the kids will enjoy. We will have packs of crayons and coloring sheets for the kids at the front, if that, if that will be helpful. And most importantly, we will commit to keeping our sermons 20 minutes long at a maximum. Because we know that for many four or five-year-olds, sitting still for 40 minutes is just not realistic. If your kids come and they make noise, that's okay. We would much rather have a church full of noisy kids learning about God than a group that is silent and spiritually dying. We know that the Zoom option can be tough with kids. And we want to support you as you help your kids to fall in love with Jesus and learn to follow God. If the Zoom option is working well for you, that's great. But we also want to make this in-person option an option for parents with young kids as well. Amen? Amen? Okay, so if you have feedback for that, if there's other things that you think we could do to help to support you, please let me know, let Lauren know, let anyone in the core leadership group know. We want to help our families to do their best. Amen? Okay. Let's get to Ephesians chapter 2. Are you guys with me? 
This is a foundational scripture because it describes the way in which God worked salvation in our lives, how God brought us from death to life. You know, we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 7, and I'm going to make five, count them, five super quick points, and then I will sit down. And I started my timer at the beginning, and I have 15 minutes and 45 seconds left, and we're going to get through these five points. Can I get an amen? Machine gun style. Here we go. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Paul writes, as for you, the church in Ephesus, he's also talking about believers around the world. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Five quick points about this passage. Number one, number one, God is the subject, not you. God is the subject, not you. You know, in, in, in the English language, we order our sentences subject, object, Sorry, subject, verb, object. We say, I ate a cheeseburger. Subject, verb, object. Greek doesn't work that way. Greek is more like Yoda, where the object of the verb is often at the beginning of the sentence. Yoda would say like, oh, here we go. He'd say like, mmm, a cheeseburger I ate, right? I mean, yoga, y Yoda says the object first often. And Greek is the same way, okay? Greek will often have the object of the verb, you know, and then first and then the subject of the verb later on. So in the, in the, when Paul's writing this letter, when he says, and you, at the very beginning there in verse one, the form of you that he, that, he, that he uses is the object of the verb. So the reader knows that he says, okay, here's you, but something is gonna come along and do something to that object, to you. Okay. This is why the, the NIV translates it as for you. It doesn't say, hey, and you, the subject of the sentence. It says, hey, as for you, that's going to be acted upon, presumably by a subject later on. And then, unfortunately, Paul kind of gets distracted describing our spiritual situation. He says, as for you, you know, well, and then he kind of goes into, into all this kind of discussion about the position that we are in. And then he does that all the way through the first three verses. And so the reader is waiting. He says, okay, you, something's going to happen to you. Something's going to happen to you. And then in verse 4, we suddenly get the actual subject, the only subject in this passage, which is, but God. The first subject that comes along is God. And this is the key. That the story of our salvation, the story of our relationship with God, God is the subject, not you. You aren't close to God because of all the good choices and the wise decisions that you have made. You're not a follower of Jesus because, you know, your 
victories and your and your uh, sacrifices that you have made have brought you to this great position it's all because of what god has done in your life even our successes and our failures as christians don't really take center stage when we become the star of the show in our hearts we quickly lose our gratitude this is why the lord's prayer and jesus is teaching his followers to pray the first it starts this way our father in heaven hallowed be your name starts about god not about us and we need to get in the habit this is the kind of the foundational principle to get in the habit of starting our days and our thoughts our ways of thinking that way the most important fact in the universe is that god is good god is the subject not us amen number two 11 minutes left number two the way of the world leads to death after setting up this this uh situation with you as the object of the verb paul quickly starts discussing the position that we are in and he expands he first talks to his readers he says hey you know you the the readers of this of this book or of this letter and then he says in verse two he says all of us also are in the same position and then in verse at the end of verse three he says well and like the rest okay so he kind of expands it from you the readers to really all christians or maybe all jewish christians and then he says eh, like the rest kind of hey let's just throw everybody in the same boat because as he's saying we are in the same boat but he describes how we and then and then the world around us have lived he says that we followed the ways of the world he talks about conformity conformity with the world living just like everyone else around us he talks about wickedness following the ruler of the kingdom of the air following the same satanic influences that have resulted in division bitterness and suffering all over the world he talks about gratifying the cravings of our flesh he talks about basically like animals almost doing whatever craving struck us without regard for what is right and he says that we have followed its desires and thoughts he's literally the the greek literally says doing the wishes of the flesh and of our thoughts but he's talking about kind of you know really scheming having evil thoughts controlling the the, the way that we live so his argument is that that this life that the way of the world leads to death and here's the principle the principle that we've got to understand is a foundational principle for our lives is that we can't just be religious people whose lives look like the world around us we can't be religious people who show up at church on sunday but whose lives look just like the world we actually have to have lives that are different lives that stand out lives that look weird to the world around us if it's not a little bit weird to the world around you there's something wrong so the question for you in what way are you recognizably different from the world around you the way of the world leads to death so we have to be different number three god acts because he loves you god acts because he loves you in verse four 
Paul gives his readers the subject. He says, hey, you know, you and on all this kind of situation, you know, in this really terrible situation leading to death, he says, but God, but God steps in. And, but actually, before he even says what God does, he describes why God does it. And this is important, I think, because if we can trust God's motives, then we can trust what God does in our lives, can't we? If you can trust why God is, is acting in your life, if you can trust his motivation, then we can actually trust what he does as well. And what does, God, what does Paul say about God's motivation? Paul says that God acts in the world and in our lives for one reason and one reason only, because he loves us. God acts because he loves us. That's it. There's no ulterior motive. He's not fed up with us and reacting to all the ways that we fall short. God acts because he loves you. And what does that mean? It means that no matter how far you feel like you've fallen short, God isn't bitter or resentful. He's there with open arms. You know, we feel like we're hypocrites if we fall short and then we try to come back to God. And I don't know, I've certainly felt like this. I'm, I'm sure that you have too. Where you feel like, man, you know, how can I go back and try to approach God again, given what I've done? We say, man, I just feel like trying to even come back to God is just hypocrisy. But God says, no, no, that's not hypocrisy. That's repentance. That's what repentance is. Repentance is falling into sin and then turning back and coming back to him. That's not being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is pretending like the sin didn't happen. Of course the sin happened. We can acknowledge it, but we can also turn back to him and find our relationship. God is waiting for us no matter where we're coming from. God acts because he loves you. Amen? Number four, Christ's victory is our victory. Christ's victory is our victory. We have our subject and we have our, our, uh, our object. We have, you know, God as the subject, us as the object, but then Paul describes what God did. He says that God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. And Paul is referring back to chapter 1 and verse 20 when he talks about how the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in heaven is working on our behalf as Christians. But now Paul says that the same, God, the same work that, that God did to, to take Christ from the grave to the throne, God doesn't just have the power to do that, which is what he talks about in chapter 1. He doesn't just have the power to, you know, that kind of power in our lives. He says he's actually already done that for each of us. That he, the same way that he took Jesus from the grave to the throne in heaven is exactly what God has done for each of us. In baptism, we go from the grave of our old lives to the victory over sin, the new life, seated in heaven with Christ. Just as Jesus was raised to a place of honor and power and glorious radiance, we also have been raised to new lives of honor in God's eyes, power by the Spirit, and radiance through the presence of God in our lives. Christ's victory is your victory. But are you living a new and victorious life in Christ? Or are you still bound by the trappings of the old life? 
Is there baggage that you have taken with you through the waters of baptism that you picked up on the other side and are still carrying? Identify it and throw it off. Christ's victory is your victory. Number five. Now I'm going to finish here. <clears throat> you guys still with me? Here we go. Number five. God will use, and this is, this is a little complicated, but I think you can handle it. Maybe not. I don't know. I guess we'll see. God will use the evidence of your life to boast of his goodness. Let me say that again. God will use the evidence of your life to boast of his goodness. That's what Paul says there in verse 7. He says, after saying what God did for us or in us, Paul helps his readers to understand the result that God is hoping to achieve through his action. He says that God raised us with Christ, seated us with him in order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Essentially, Paul's saying, in the new age, God has staked his reputation on the way that he treats you. This means we can trust God with our future, knowing that if we commit ourselves to him, that of course he will come through for us. Of course we can trust him. Of course he is faithful. He has staked his reputation on it. So here's the question. How would you live your life differently if you knew that God was with you, was on your side, was going to be faithful? What different choices would you make if you knew that God was with you? Because we, we can trust him because we know God will use the evidence of our lives, of the way that he treated us, the way that he was faithful and good to us. In the coming ages, Paul says, he, God will use that as evidence for his goodness. So we've read Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. We've seen now, Paul talks about how God brought each of us from death to life. And if we talk about really using this as a foundation in our lives, we can talk about these principles of making God the subject, not us. Of understanding that the way of the world leads to death, and so being different from the world around us. Understanding that God acts because he loves us, not out of resentment or bitterness. That Christ's victory is our victory. And so we should expect victorious lives that are unhindered by the baggage that, that, that we can sometimes bring. And we can know that God will use the evidence of our life to boast of his goodness. We can trust him with our future, knowing that God will be faithful. Let's put these principles into practice and build on the solid foundation. Amen? Amen. That's it. Amen. With 50 seconds to spare. Come on now. Go ahead.